In this episode, we talk about difficult topics like abuse and trauma. Please listen at your own discretion. I saw so many people talking about, um, you know, religious sexualized violence in general and church too in particular, as if it is a problem of like individual bad men needing to do better at like caring for women. And I'm like, this is about purity culture. This is about the fact that our entire sexual theology needs to be upheaved. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gariella, and this is Holy Heretics. Today, we have the honor of talking with Emily Joy Allison, who is a writer, a poet, and a yoga teacher. She holds a degree in philosophical theology and apologetics from Moody Bible Institute, and she's currently pursuing a Master of Theological Studies from Vanderbilt Divinity School. But the most important part, the part that we're going to be talking about today, is that in November 2017, as the Me Too movement was going viral, Emily came forward with her own story of abuse at the hands of her church and launched the Church Two movement overnight. She has been writing and speaking about religious sexualized violence and its theological underpinnings ever since. And most recently, she has written a book about it. It's called Hashtag Church Two, How Purity Culture Upholds Abuse and How to Find Healing. And it just released on March 9th. So welcome, Emily. We are so glad to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Emily, I've been looking forward to talking to you since I watched this whole thing kind of go live several years ago on Twitter. So as Melanie said, your bio is, you know, shows that you're pretty multi-talented. And so we would love to talk to you about all the things, but let's kind of focus on just the purity culture side, especially since Melanie and I just talked to Joshua Harris, who was in many ways kind of the godfather of the purity movement and purity culture. Um, So I want to talk specifically about your book. How did you end up writing it? Um, uh, What led to this whole Church 2 movement? And how did purity culture in particular uh, contribute to that entire story? Yeah. Um, Well, uh, that could be a a book-length answer, and it is. (laughs) But in in short, um, yeah, you know, I did not set out on purpose to be a part of a movement like this or to um, be a part of starting it or or even to write a book about it. You know, I have always been a writer. If you look me up on social media, all of my handles are at Emily Joy Poetry because I came into doing this work um, as an artist, as a performance poet. And, you know, I've been writing different kinds of things all my life. And I thought I always wanted to write a book, but I didn't know what it was going to be on. And so I just was like, well, I'll write a book when I have 50,000 words to say about something, <laughs> um, but not until then. <laughs> and so, so yeah, so all of it was sort of, um, I mean, unintentional is not is not necessarily the right word because it was a very intentional process of coming forward, but I did not expect any of this when I came forward. So you know, like you said in the introduction, uh, that all happened, me coming forward and sharing my story on Twitter in uh, November of 2017. Um, and it took another almost two years 
to, you know, actually like have a book contract in hand. Um, and it was a process over time of, of really thinking critically of like, how do I want to be a part of shaping and participating in this movement that my story launched? Right. Mm. And so, so yeah, eventually I did go ahead and, um, and sign a contract to write a book about it because I realized, um, over the, the following two years after, after the movement launched that, um, if I didn't write a book about it, uh, somebody else was going to, and they probably weren't going to do it the way that I would have wanted. They probably would not have, uh, have done, done justice to what I felt was at the heart of the movement. And I wanted to be a part of shaping that conversation. So here we are. Mm. So it sounds like you went to Twitter with your story of abuse. Um, is that, is that correct? You just said, I'm going to tweet about what happened to me or, or how did, how did that hashtag become a thing? Yeah. You know, um, so the, my story was something I had been holding onto for about 10 years. And I think that anybody that knows me knows that I am, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty open on social media. Like I'm a I'm pretty much an open book. I will talk about I'll talk about my mental illness, I'll talk about my sex life, I'll talk about pretty much anything. Um but this was one thing that I had not shared and I had not talked about publicly. And I had thought over the years, you know, since it happened like maybe I should talk about this at some point, but I I didn't really know you know what it was. And I think sometimes um I mean survivors in general and and women particularly are are conditioned to sort of self-gaslight and say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Like other people had it worse. And so mm -hmm. that was kind of like my journey for about 10 years was kind of fighting with that of like, is do I even have a story? <laughs> like is this mm -hmm. so many people had it so much worse than me. So like why would I complain basically? And so uh so in November of 2017 was kind of, you know, when the when the Me Too hashtag was going viral. Now, of course, you know, we've learned since then that um, Tarana Burke has been doing work under the banner of Me Too for, you know, 10 years. But November of 2017 was when it was starting to go viral on social media and people who weren't familiar with Tarana's Burke, Tarana Burke's work were, were starting to become familiar with it. And so that was going on. That was the that was the soup that we were swimming in, you know, that semester. But uh yeah, I think it was just one day. And to be honest with you, I don't even remember who it was. Um, but there were just so many men like in Hollywood and in Washington who were being exposed during that time to have been like these like predators for years mm -hmm. and years and years. And and one week it was like it was one guy and then it was another guy and then it was a third guy. And I just it felt like it was never ending. Mm -hmm. um, and and I just got fed up. Like I just I just. I had woke up one day and I was like, might be, might be the time to out my abuser on Twitter. Hmm. <laughs> like, I, I think that's what I'm going to do with my evening. And, and so that is what I did. Um, and, and I knew anecdotally, you know, just from, from doing the work that I do, from talking to folks about faith and gender and sexuality, like as a job, um, for years and years that like, I, I knew this was widespread. Um, by by the time that I came forward, I knew it wasn't just me. I knew that there were other people that had these stories as well. But I did not realize. I think what was surprising was not how many other stories there were, but the fact that people were actually finally starting to pay attention, right? Because mm. um, so that night, I tweeted the story, and then I had a friend who was also, you know, in the conversation with me on Twitter and stuff, and we were kind of talking about, well, um, you know, it's clear people people want to talk about this because people were responding to my thread and they were saying, 
oh, something similar happened to me. And I had this really weird experience with a youth pastor when I was younger and, you know, et cetera. And so we were like, we need to, we need to find a way for people to be able to have this conversation or like to compile these stories or something. So we're like, let's Mm -hmm. do a hashtag. So we settled on church too. And overnight, you know, I mean, it was thousands and thousands of tweets um, by the morning. And I think that was the most surprising part of it to me was I knew there was thousands of stories, you know, I already knew that, but it was surprising to me that people were finally paying attention. Mm -hmm. Um, because I felt like folks had been trying to raise hell about religious sexualized violence for a long time. Um, but I think, I don't know, I think it was just the right moment at the right time in the right context of me too. It's just, it, we're having a very particular cultural, I mean, you know, it's a little cliche, but we're having a very particular cultural moment about this mm. right now. Mm. Right. And so, and I think church too was just there to like step in and be like, here is how we're going to have this conversation, you know, when it mm. comes to Christianity. Mm. Well, and it seems like you putting your voice out there, it was like, oh, if she was brave enough to do it, I can be brave enough to do it, which is sometimes it, that's all it takes is that one person to finally be like, I'm going to talk about this. And then everybody's like, oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've been waiting for this kind of thing. Or, or we didn't know that it was OK to talk about this. So I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But as you were, well, I guess, did you know at the time that purity culture was part of the problem or was that something you uncovered as part of your research for the book? Or how did purity culture play into this? Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've been talking about purity culture since long before church too. Yeah, that is, in, in my undergraduate degree, I did a lot of studies on, um, you know, gender roles and um, my little baby, baby Christian feminist self was really trying her best. At <laughs> um, but, but even after then, continued, continued to um, have that be the sort of thing, you know, I wrote, I wrote, poems about purity culture. I traveled around the country, you know, in the before times, like speaking at churches and, um, you know, camps and conferences and schools all about purity culture. Like this is a thing that I talked about professionally and a thing I've been, I've been, you know, kind of thinking and dreaming about for a really long time because yeah, I have known, you know, anecdotally from my own upbringing and also, uh, you know, from, (laughs) from research, from academic studies, from, um, you know, experts and professionals that that purity culture is a huge part of. Um, yeah, well, I was going to say the problem of church too. Purity culture is a huge part of a lot of problems, mm. and just one of those is church too. But yeah, no, that was that was something that was very clear to me. And actually, that's kind of why I I felt strongly about writing the book is because you know I noticed I noticed pretty quickly within the first few I mean you know the first few days of church too everybody was like you know you're a heretic and a lesbian and I was like at that point like I wasn't even out at that point you know like, oh, man um but uh but I noticed pretty quickly that there were a lot of people and churches and organizations who were sort of like glomming onto the church to movement um in 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 a sort of exploitative way Hmm. Right. Because when you when you use the hashtag church, too, and you're talking about how much you care about survivors, that's a really good way to make you look like you care about survivors. Right. You're like, we need to believe women and we need to care well for survivors. Hashtag church, too. Um, But then I I go to their I go to their page. Right. I I see, you know, Pastor Pastor Bob so and so. And, you know, he's at this this and that community church. And I look up their church and I go to their church website and I click on the about us and I click on what we believe. And then right there it says that women can't be pastors and have to be submissive to men and being gay is a sin. And, um, you know, all of these different things. And I'm like, okay, well, 
in in that case, I don't really know if you know what you're saying when you use the word mm. church too. Right. Right. Um, the answer is not to respond to sexualized violence by saying, well, we have to keep our theology all exactly the same, but just we got to do better about caring for survivors. No, because the theology is part and parcel of, you know, the basic constitutive problem of mm. church too. Mm. Yep. And so, so yeah, that's, that's another reason that I felt really strongly about writing the book because I was like, I saw so many people talking about, um, you know, religious sexualized violence in general and church too in particular, as if it is a problem of like individual bad men needing to do better at like caring for women. And I'm like, this is about purity culture. This is about the fact that our entire sexual theology needs to be upheaved. Mm. So you just mentioned something there that I think is really important, especially not only probably in the research that you're doing, uh, but also in the churches that so many of us uh, have grown up in and probably continue to be a part of in that it's male-driven, male-dominated, male theology, women are second-class citizens. Can you talk about that in particular as it contributes to uh, an environment in the church where often a predator is protected and a victim of sexual grooming or sexual assault is just sort of left to the wind? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of ways that happens or that intersects with um with violence. And I, and I sort of talk about this, um, in my book in, in the chapter on complementarianism, because I think there's kind of two things going on, right? So if you don't, I, I'm not sure, uh, depending on your readership, your audience, uh, some folks might be familiar with complementarianism, some folks maybe less so, but it's, you know, basically just that theological body of work that, um, states that men and women are equal. Uh, and those are the only two genders <laughs> in complementarianism. There's nothing else. In com there's only men and women. But in complementarianism, men and women, the only two genders, are um, technically equal in the eyes of God, but they are called to different um, roles, both at home, at church, and in broader society. And lots of lots of uh, you know very famous denominations are very stridently um, complementarian. I'm thinking off the top of my head of like the Southern Baptist Convention, right? Very mm -hmm. complementarian. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of Acts 29, like. Um, mm. neo-Calvinist denominations, very complementarian. Um, and so, you know, I, it's not to say that if you are just simply not complementarian, you will have no abuse at your church or in your religious community, right? Because we know this to not be the case. Um, we have seen, particularly in the last, you know, six to nine months, um, several very well-known progressive to moderate, like, um, you know, very gay affirming, like pro women in leadership people have gotten exposed as actually having been abusers this whole time. Um, so simply shedding complementarianism does not act as like a protectant <laughs> against mm. abuse. There has to be other, you know, additive things with that as well. Um, but I will say that I think that um, whether you call it complementarianism or not, this broader culture within Christianity of prioritizing men and specifically white, heterosexual, cisgender men um, at the expense of pretty much any other people group in, in, in the whole community it does have a huge impact on how sexual violence is perpetrated, um, excused, and responded to, right? Part of this is because, you know, um, I was just reading these statistics this morning for a paper that I was reading, but, um, you know, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network cites that uh, nine out of 10 victims of rape are women. Right. Um, mm. So 
when you look at that, right, you look at that's just a fact of living in the world. And then you then you add in this church culture that says um, men are in charge by virtue of being born with the genitals they have. Um, <laughs> this is divinely decreed by God. Women have to submit to men, um, not just at church, right? It's not just that women can't preach, but also like women probably shouldn't be president. Also at home, like women have to submit to their husbands. And a lot of times this extends into the bedroom, into areas of mm-hmm. sexuality, right? Um, I mean, women in these in these contexts are are pretty much discipled to not know when their boundaries are being crossed mm. because they're being told this is holy, this is God ordained. It doesn't matter what you want, right? Um, and I think that just that just lays the groundwork for um, not just sexual abuse but all kinds of violence, really. Um, yeah, and and you can extend that to you know sexual minorities. You can extend that to LGBTQ people in the church who are being told that their sexuality is a sin. And so when someone abuses them, um, they don't want to come forward because they don't want to get outed. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and there's there's just this can be extended into so many different ways. So it's this power hoarding impulse of complementarianism and this prioritizing of folks with privilege while further marginalizing folks with less privilege that. Um, really just creates a very toxic environment that is ripe for abuse. Hmm. I mean, I'm just taking well, a second to process. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> well, I mean, wasn't it John Piper who just a few years ago said that women should, quote, uh, um, endure abuse for a season? He sure based did, on, yeah. Yeah, and based on their submissive that, role. What's wild about that is that that is that that statement is abhorrent, right? We know this, like... Right. <laughs> We, 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 we look at that and we go, oh my God, how could someone say that? But that statement flows directly from his theology. Totally he doesn't believe does. that in spite of his theology. Exactly. He's just like somehow misogynist, even though his theology is good. No, right. he believes that because of his theology. Right. It is a direct it, line. Yeah. And, and I think there's like so many layers here, um, you know, from just Western European, um, notions of masculinity mm-hmm. and then you bring into that this you know white supremacy white nationalism um i was just doing some research last night on the founding fathers and you know all men are created equal well not really uh actually <laughs> all white men with property um are created equal and and so there's an there's you're right it's not just church but when you do get to church and then you add god to the equation and god is a guy and god has set up the entire system for men to be in charge it is no wonder that there are rampant systemic structural abuses taking place and it's no wonder that the institution of the church then doubles down and tries to protect those men that they have groomed to be in power in the first place i mean it's a well that was going to be my you're, question you're, you're losing everywhere that's that's my question though because for so many people it like you can't change the theology because changing the th- theology means you're saying like that we've been wrong for all this time and like the theology is so ingrained as this is how it is that to change the theology means you're not you don't you no longer worship god so for someone i think of a lot of people in my life who who would who would just immediately balk at that and they would say well this is just how god is it's not my fault like this is just how it is like mm-hmm. what do you say to that how do you how do you make any kind of 
headway with someone who believes that. Yeah, this is a thing that I have been thinking about um well, really for years, but but particularly um particularly during the Trump presidency. Um I think this became a very prescient issue because a lot of people were asking themselves this like how do we're we're literally like we're it's not even that we're like not on the same page. We're not in the same book. We're not in the same library. We're not in the same planet, right? Like <laughs> this is how do you even begin to to deal with this? Um and so I mean I um I no longer do apologetics um mm. for myself um any of my identities or really even for the people that I love. I I, I it's I'm hmm, I don't come at this anymore from a place of like here let me show you how it's okay for me to be me from the Bible. Mm. Mm. I don't I don't do that anymore because I don't think if people don't believe you when you tell them about your lived experience as a marginalized person, they're not going to believe you if you come to them with like data and, you know, a, a whiteboard where you can he- point out, well, here's all, here's all the ways that you can change your mind and here's why. Um, because it's not really about that. Like asking for that, that proof, that um, quote unquote dialogue, which we know is not really dialogue, um, <laughs> but asking for that dialogue, I think really ends up being a way to obfuscate responsibility for having to uh, own the fact that your theology has been harmful, right? Hmm. And that's really hard for people to do and they don't want to do it. So instead, they'd rather argue about like the specific translation of pornea in Romans, Mm -hmm. right? But that's not what it's about. What it's about is fear. Um, Hmm. People are fearful of changing their mind. And that's for a lot of reasons. You know, I think for some people, I really feel for them because they've been told their whole lives by their pastors and by people in authority over them um, in, you know, church and religious context that like questioning these things, these things are sacrosanct. You can't question them. You'd be basically questioning God. The Bible is clear. Christians have always believed X, Y, Z, you know, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Um, We've, we've all heard it. Um, And so I don't, I don't participate in that conversation anymore because Mm. I will not um, try to force someone to see me as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think participating in that conversation sort of concedes ground that I don't want to concede, which is that my humanity, my experience is like up for debate, right? Mm, right. Like that I can say purity culture hurt me and you can say, give me proof. No, no, that is ridiculous. I'm not doing <laughs> that conversation. I did it for a while when I was younger, when I was first, um, you know, cause I mean, deconstruction is a very, uh, popular idea and term right now. Lots of people talking about it. Um, I was deconstructing in like, you know, 2010, right? Like these are, I, I've, I've been having, so early, earlier, I did, I did have those conversations, but I no longer think that they are useful because I am very busy and I don't have time to do things that are not effective. Mm. So I think for me, when I look at this question, I think, um, I want to do harm reduction. And I want to not waste, you know, it's, it's, it's a little like robotic. I'm an Enneagram five. I don't know if you guys do the Enneagram. It's a little robotic. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, I don't want to do things that do not give me a good return on my investment. Mm. I'm not going to spend an hour fighting with you on Facebook. If that's not going to change your mind or mine, that's just going to waste my time. It's going to frazzle my nerves. And then I'm not going to have the time and energy to care for the people in my community that are being hurt by your harmful theology. 
So, so that's kind of how I feel about that. Number one, the second <laughs> thing I will say is this: I wish for churches to change their theology. Um, and I am not, you know, you can't prove a universal negative. I cannot say there are no churches who are willing to do the work. Um, that's not true. I don't. And I, I not only can I not prove a universal negative, but I also don't think it's true. I do think there are some um, churches who really are willing to put in the work to be not just save, but uh, safe, but as, as my friend Mickey, Mickey Scott Bay Jones says, a uh, brave space for survivors. Right. Um, I do think there are, there are churches and other, you know, Christian communities, uh, more broadly that are willing to do that work. Um, I will say, I think most are not, hmm. it's gonna, yeah, most are not. And that is why my job kind of sucks because <laughs> I am throwing down the gauntlet knowing that most of most churches are not going to pick it up. Hmm. And I never know how to feel about that. Other than that, I think, um, you know, we we really fear uh, death in Western society. Um, we have a very dysfunctional relationship with it. Um, and I think you can see that based on, you know, the response to the pandemic um, and just all of the different ways that theme of death has has come up and how we have responded to it um, in various ways very poorly. Um, we're very scared of death. Uh, but I think, I think, um, I don't know if this is like <laughs> controversial for your, for your audience, but I, I think a lot of churches need to die. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think maybe my job is to, um, be a pallbearer. You know, mm -hmm. I think maybe mm -hmm. my job is to help facilitate a good death. Um, <laughs> because, because ultimately like, if a church can make the changes necessary so that it's not being a force for net harm in the world, great. If it can't do that, then the world will be better off when it's no longer there. Yeah, no, I, I think you're onto something there, especially when you look at all of the factors that are coalescing around the institutional church in the West, it, it's dying. Um, COVID was a, a huge factor in from a financial perspective. It was a huge factor in emptying the pews itself. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, how many of us have not gone back uh, since COVID? Um, I haven't. I haven't. Um, yeah. Uh, then you add on to that the entire debacle of the Trump presidency and the heretical whoring of the church in running after Trump and linking the cause of Christ with the GOP. Um, and then just on top of that, just this growing malaise against, I think, um, a faith that has never been embodied in the first place, a faith that has mm -hmm. only been only been reduced to the rationalistic mind. And that really goes back a little bit to what you were saying about no longer doing apologetics. Like if, if you will not um, accept my lived embodied experience as proof for something we 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 really have nothing to talk about here and so i think that's a whole other level where the church has become anemic to the world because it will not recognize embodied uh lived experiences and and experience matters and mm -hmm. experience teaches us things and shows us things about the world that god forbid may not be in the bible so i think <laughs> you're onto something and i i love that term I mean, I when you said I'm a pallbearer, I mean, I can almost see you with a lot of us walking forward with a church that has died and mm. laying it on the altar and saying, we're actually 
we want to build what's next. We want to mourn the fact that this age is over. And in some ways, honestly, we're going to pop the champagne too, because this (laughs) needed to die. This needed to die because it was killing us. And let's go build, uh, let's go build what's next. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think this is a great time to ask, um, beyond just like having the complementarian theology, what are some warning signs for anyone who's listening that they might be in a church that has the potential at least to foster abuse and even keep it secret if they do find out about Mm it? Well, any church has the potential to foster abuse, right? Um, And so that's kind of the hard part, as does any school, um, as does any, uh, you know, (laughs) as does Hollywood, as does Washington, Mm. any community um, has the potential to harbor abuse regardless of, um, you know, the specific theological beliefs. So we have to reckon with that first, right? Abusers, predators um, are very tricky people and they are usually very charismatic and they get people to like them and to trust them. And so in some sense, you will never be able to like ward off like 100% of possible violence that could ever intersect with your community. And that is, that is a hard, hard reality, um, to deal with. On the other hand, um, I'll say kind of like what I was saying before about complementarianism, um, shedding it is not enough. You have to, there have to be additive values. It can't just be like, oh, well, we don't think women are second-class citizens, therefore we're fine. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, there has, there has to be additive positive, you know, theological and social frameworks um to act as protectants against abuse also um but i will say this if your church um says that women cannot be pastors says that women have to submit to their husbands says that being gay is a sin or that lgbtq people have to be celibate forever or marry someone of a different sex otherwise they are sinning if they say that there are only two genders, um, that being trans is a sin, uh, being non-binary or intersex is a sin. Um, if they say that you absolutely have to have absolutely no um, you know, sexual contact up until legal monogamous marriage with a cisgender heterosexual man and a cisgender heterosexual woman, um, if they say any of these things, if they say you have to dress modestly in order to stop people from stumbling... <laughs> um, these are all risk factors for abuse. Mm. And these are all theologies that tie directly into abusive behavior. So sort of like John Piper, right? Um, It's not in spite of the theology. It's because of the theology. Getting rid of those things is step one, right? Um, Step two then is figuring out, okay, do I want to stay in a church? If so, can I find a church with sex positive theology? If I do not want to stay in a church, like, that's fine. Can I find a community that's sex positive? You know, there's lots of mm. options for for community and for healing post purity culture, um, but all of those things are risk factors for abuse. And I and I say that, um, you know, in a general way. But there are also like very real academic studies that have been done that support this. This is not just like me, Emily, who's been talking about purity culture for a decade, saying this. This is like um, one of the studies I cite in my book is that um, they did a study with. Um, uh, it was college men. I think it was grad students, um, who were a part of a a conservative seminary. Um, and they found that, um, belief in complementarian theology, right? So like male headship, female submission, this sort of thing, 
um, correlates to greater acceptance of domestic violence myths. Um, mm. So the more complementarian you are, the more of those beliefs that you hold, um, the more likely you are to believe myths about domestic violence. Um, and DMVs, uh, domestic, or DVMs, domestic violence myths, are things like, well, she was wearing a short skirt, so she was asking for it. Um, mm, or, right. you know, she drank too much. She shouldn't have been drinking. Um, or she didn't say no. Um, these are all domestic violence myths, right? She just made him angry, and that's why he hit her. Um, right. So if you believe complementarian theology, you are more likely to believe domestic violence myths, and they have also correlated belief in domestic violence myths to greater perpetration of actual domestic violence. Hmm. So, so when I say it's a risk factor, I mean that seriously. Like it mm -hmm. is legitimately actually a risk factor for abuse. So uh, let's get really kind of personal right now. Um, if you are speaking to someone or someone is listening right now who either has been a victim of sexual abuse or sexual violence or uh, maybe um, thinks that they have, but they're not sure based on their own um, inability to, to either uh, comprehend it or process it, or even from a lack of sex education, what can we tell those individuals to help them um, move forward to heal and in, in your ways to potentially even out their abuser? I mean, what's the first step in um, moving forward when you have experienced something so traumatic like this? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of things. I think um, just to the question of like trying to figure out like if this applies to you or not, um, you know, I think it's important to remember that sexual sexualized violence exists on a continuum, right? And so um, a lot of times like in Western society, we have this idea of like sexual violence as like stranger rape, right? Like someone jumps out of the bushes um, and that does happen. But most of the time when sexual violence is perpetrated, it's perpetrated by someone the victim knows. Um, right. And so, so, but people think like, oh, if it wasn't just like this random attack and someone jumped out of the bushes and assaulted me, then like, I don't really have anything to complain about. And I'm like, actually, sexual, sexualized violence, um, such a hard word to say three times <laughs> fast, um, sexualized violence exists on this whole continuum of, of speech patterns and behaviors and theologies. Like, I think purity culture is a sexualized violence. And also, like, I experience sexualized violence because the violence was um, about sexuality. It was about romance. It was about like this sort of thing, even though rape is not a part of my story. And that's why I didn't come forward for a really long time hmm. is because hmm. I wasn't raped. And so I thought I didn't have anything to complain about. I thought, well, yes, this man twice my age who was supposed to be my spiritual authority figure at church did groom me and tell me he wanted to marry me and like all of this, you know, graphic stuff. And um, but, but I didn't, I didn't get raped. So, so like, what am I really, you know, I'm, I'm just making stuff up. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is how we are conditioned. We survivors in general, women particularly are conditioned to self gaslight, like I mentioned at the beginning. Um, and, and it can be really like, it's an overwhelming thing to come to terms with. I remember, um, the first time I ever talked to a therapist about it, um, was when I was an undergrad. And it wasn't like my therapist, but it was a therapist who was also a professor who had like, you know, office hours and stuff. And I remember talking to her about it and she said to me, are you sure that you haven't been like sexually abused because you are talking exactly like someone who has been sexually abused? Wow. And I was like, no, I remember like I know that I know that like rape is not a part of my story. But like what I'm what, what I'm saying is that 
these things, these experiences, these cultures like purity culture leave marks on our heart um, and impact our lives going forward in ways that are that are virtually indistinguishable. You know, it's traumatic either way. And your body doesn't really know the difference. Uh, when it's sexual trauma, your body really doesn't. It, it just responds um, the way that sentient mammals are evolved to respond to trauma, right? It internalizes that. And then we, you know, we end up with all of our unhealthy coping mechanisms and our our negative self-evaluation and all. And it takes time to undo that, right? Um, so like, if you think maybe this applies to you, maybe it does. It's okay if it wasn't this like perfect, um, you know, just like out of a movie, right? Like out of a horror movie, this stranger assault, like there can be a whole spectrum of violences that can happen to people that can be traumatizing. And if it was traumatizing to you, it was traumatizing. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to, well, someone else had it, had it worse. Well, probably, but like when we're playing oppression Olympics, everybody loses. Hmm. If you're just like playing the game of like who had it worse, um, that's not going to lead to healing for anybody. So, uh, so that's my first thing to say, maybe it does. And it's okay to come to terms with that after a while. And it's okay if, it takes you a while to like sort it out and find out, but just know that sexualized violence exists on a continuum. Um, and it looks like a lot of different things, including purity culture. Mm -hmm. Um, what was the second part of that question? (laughs) Um, was it about, what was it about moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I think it's more for that individual who, uh, that you have said a couple of times now is sort of self gaslighting, like, well, it really wasn't that bad. Yes. How to come forward. Yes. Okay. Like how do I deal with this when in, in most cases, um, I mean, and, and I think we've seen this over and again, where women, especially in the church are, are not believed. They are shunned. Mm -hmm. They are told, well, just like in your case, well, was it really that bad? I mean, you know, did he do this, this or this? And and there is a knee-jerk reaction to protect the men. And you yeah. see this happening, circling the wagons, especially for the pastor. I mean, it, it's mind-boggling to me that the church is almost the most singular place in society where uh, we will run to aid the perpetrator and and just slut shame the victim. I mean, we just saw it with Ravi Zacharias and all well, the quote the Bible while we're doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so as a woman, as a potential young girl in an environment that's already not safe, and I would even say that most families are not safe. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you go mother. to your you go to your dad, and the first thing he says was, "What did you do to make Pastor Joe stumble?" Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so no, my parents—that's what happened to me. My parents, um, not just blamed me, but like punished. I was like grounded. Yeah, because <laughs> again, it's like, your right? fault. Like I wasn't allowed right. to like I wasn't allowed to like take the car places, and I was. Do you think that? Do you think that's the problem? The problem in this situation is that I took the car to church. No. <laughs> Right. So that's my that's my my point is there, you know, for that person who is living under a cascading uh, array of of manipulation and control and domination, how do they break free? How do they tell their story if they're not going to tweet it? Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. Um 
like any other marginalized group of people, um, people outside of that group often see the group as a monolith and expect that one person should be able to speak for the entire group. Right. Right. Um, yeah, it's Candace Owens speaking for all of Black America. Right. right. Yeah. And so this happens with um, this happens with survivors also, right? Like, and and the thing of it is, I think we really in our in our pastoral response to this, we really need to make room for each individual survivor to pursue a different path, right? Like, I got on Twitter and I named names, but that is because I don't live in the place where my abuse took place anymore. I live very far away from the man who abused me. Um, at the, I mean, I am um, engaged to be married to a woman now, um, but I, I got divorced at the time I was married to a man. So I was like, also at the time I was like, I'm actually living with a man. I feel pretty safe. Um, you know, I, I have a decent number of Twitter followers. So there's a lot of people to bear witness to this. There's a lot of, you know, safety in numbers, essentially. Um, that's not the case for, so like, a lot people do not have to name names if you don't want to name names. You don't even have to um name your name if you don't want to name a name, right? Like it's not always about um I think sometimes we really approach this question from a very like carceral standpoint. Um and this is something my thinking is evolving on. Um and, and I may want to write, I don't know, maybe I'll write a second book about this, but um I'm not ready yet. It just it needs to it needs to to, you know, marinate. Um <laughs> but but I am learning to think about church too um, through the lens of of prison abolition, mm. and I'm thinking what because um, I because I I believe in prison abolition and I believe um, in police abolition, and I'm thinking what what would it look like to um, pursue justice in non carceral ways in these mm. situations? Like what would it what would it be like to do harm reduction to um, try and make sure that someone can't hurt people before, but to not participate in the in the carceral and police state um, mm. while we're doing it right. Um, and so sometimes these questions are approached very carcerally at thinking that like the best thing to do is to name names so that someone goes to jail. Right. Um, and that is actually not possible in a lot of situations, both because of like statue of limitations. Um, we've seen that with a lot of church folks since they're coming forward later as an adult, the statue of limitations is, um, you know, long since passed up with me. It wasn't possible. Like I knew that I would not be able to, um, you know, achieve any sort of like legal process uh with my story because i am not a hundred percent sure anything technically illegal happened right like very unethical very unethical very immoral um but absent and you know absent a rape i'm not sure anything illegal happened so i was like this is not for me right this this sure. thing where like we have this like knockdown drag out legal battle is not going to be for me so what does justice look like for me and i think that's the thing that every survivor needs to ask themselves is like what does justice look like for me not what it looks like for someone else, not mm. what it looks like on TV, not what, you know, but what is, what would actually be reparative for me? Mm. Um, and, and how do I move forward? And I, you know, this is the same with like forgiveness, right? I don't talk publicly about whether or not I have forgiven my abuser because I don't think it's anyone's business. Um, mm. And I do like, right, that's between me and my idea of God. And number two, I don't want people to go, I don't want people to use me as an example to pressure other survivors to do something similar, right? This is where we mm. get the whole one person being expected to act as like a spokesperson for the whole. I don't want people, I don't want to go, oh, I've forgiven my abuser. And people go, well, now you have to forgive yours. Or I, I want to say, oh, I haven't forgiven my abuser. And so then people go to survivors and say, well, you're a bad person for forgiving yours. You're too soft on them, right? Like you, you really <laughs> right. can't, you, you can't, can't win. You can't freaking win. 
right? So that's why I don't talk about it publicly because it's nobody's business. But the point being that I think everybody needs to ask themselves, what does justice look like for me? Now, there are options, right? If you want to come forward, you can always get on Twitter. That's why the hashtag church too is so awesome because you can Mm -hmm. use the hashtag and you can get it in front of, you know, hundreds and thousands of eyes, like pretty immediately. So that's kind of amazing. Um, there are also like my friends, um, at Hillary and Stephanie at, uh, into account, um, which is an organization that, um, kind of walks with survivors through the process of seeking justice, um, in Christian institutions. Um, and you know, they have a form on their website. You can like tell them about your situation and if you want help publicizing it, um, they can offer that and you know, that sort of thing. Um, their website, by the way, I just, I plug them everywhere because I love them so much, but their website is into account.org and I love them and they're great. Um, but but yeah, you know, there's there's so many different options. Um, mm. I've I've had people ask me, I want to come forward with my story, like in the media. You know, sometimes you can get lucky and get you know a journalist who is in a national uh, publication on the on the hashtag. Sometimes it's easy to start with just like your local news, right? Especially if it happened locally, um, that stuff gets picked up. Like we are in a new we're in a new media landscape now, where stuff mm. is not as um, you know separated as it used to be. Mm. Um, we are we are both uh, we're <laughs> We're talking about this in one of my classes, but the, this idea of being like a prosumer, right? Um, I can't remember who came up with that idea. It wasn't me, but a, product, a producer and a consumer of content, of data, right? We are all prosumers um, in this new media landscape. So things are not as divided as they used to be. So there's lots of ways to get your story out there if that's what you want to do, but you don't have to. Um, sometimes, hot take, sometimes... Uh, these hashtags, and it's not just church to me too. It's all kinds of different hashtags that have happened over the last, you know, few years. Um, sometimes it just makes marginalized people perform their trauma in public uh, for people that are never going to believe them anyway. Right. Um, right. So your energy is sacred. Save it if you need to. Mm. Well, I would love to keep talking forever on so many things, (laughs) Um, but we are running out of time. So I do want to ask you the question that we like to end on, because um, we we do need to talk about things that the church has gotten wrong or where it has messed up and even potentially about different churches dying. Um, But I also do want to like talk about what do you see as something hopeful for the future of faith? Is there anything that gives you hope as we move forward and we grow um, that that the church is going to become less harmful or that we're going to be able to root out all these um, systemic problems that we have? Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't know if like it would if it'll really be called the church in the future. Like I don't maybe that word will die. Right. Maybe we think of the church as like this thing from before. And like maybe there's some I don't know. Maybe the church will endure as an idea. Um, but but what gives me a lot of hope about whatever the church becomes, even if it's something, you know, a different name um, is just like I, I mean, maybe this is just me like being uh, in seminary at Vanderbilt, very progressive seminary. Um, you know, and just knowing, being very connected to a lot of folks um, all over the country and all over the world who are in, you know, religious and theological work. But I just, there's so many um, queer and trans Christians and particularly queer and trans Christians who are also people of color um, who are just doing incredible liberatory work um, in the spite of great, in the, in the face of great opposition, mm-hmm. right? 
um, who are carving out a space for themselves, who are writing new liturgies, who are making, literally making our own space. I was just thinking about this because um, I think today the, you know, it'll be done by the time this episode releases, but today as we're recording, I think is the last day of the Kickstarter for the Our Bible app. Um, mm. And that gives me hope, right? Because like that, they were like, okay, we're not going to try to make the Bible apps like us. We're not going to try to make them be gay friendly. They won't. We'll just make our own thing. Right. Mm. And I love that. I love that energy, that energy of just like, fine, we'll just make our own thing. Like, I don't want a space at your table. That's the ironic part. I'm gonna build Mm. my own table and have my own friends. And you're also welcome at it if you can put down your weapons. (laughs) Right. But like, I don't want a space at that table. Mm. I want to be at the table where all of the people doing this amazing liberatory work, what a word, liberative work (laughs) is um, where they are, you know? Uh, and yeah. I think that's really beautiful that we are, it feels like kind of, um, in energy, we're sort of like turning a corner, right? We're turning the corner of like, no, 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 give me a, a place at your table to like, we have our own table now. And I think that's beautiful. Mm. I love that. I love that. All right. So we're not actually quite done. Uh, we would love to ask you some rapid fire questions if you're okay. up for that. Yes. Um, just to kind of end our time. So, all right. First question. Uh, what is one thing you really miss about pre pandemic life? Oh, man. Oh, kind of everything, really. Um, (laughs) One thing that I used to love to do, um, and I I say I used to love to do it. um, Sometimes uh, men would take it as an invitation to flirt with me. Um, But I used to love to like in the afternoon, like go to a bar and just like sit inside at the bar and have a drink by myself and read a book. Mm, I would just take a book with me and sit at the bar in the middle of the day when no one's there and read a book. And that it was amazing. Like, so peaceful. It was one of oh, my favorite man. things to do. <laughs> well, now I miss that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of things we can't do right now, uh, what is your favorite restaurant in Nashville that you can't wait to go back to? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, I've still been getting all of the takeout um, in the pandemic. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, my favorite restaurant in Nashville. Oh my goodness. Well, I really love um Distillery. Um it is in Midtown. They have a location downtown as well. It's where my favorite pizza is. Um it's like this wood-fired pizza oven that is just unbelievable. Um and my, they have my favorite wine there too. I'm also I've I've been a vegetarian for quite a few years now. Um and I really like the sister restaurants, um Grays and Wild Cow. Um, they're like different bi- vibes, but both of them are vegan and very, very, very delicious. Mm. So no Jack's barbecue on the strip downtown. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Nash Vegas, man. It's an interesting place. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's a cool place. All right. So what's your f- favorite class you're taking, uh, right now at Vanderbilt? <sighs> you know, I think, I think it is probably, um, the class that I was talking about where we learned about being prosumers, um, that is called, uh, theology, visual culture and new media. And it is taught by Dr. Ellen Armour. Um, and it is such a good class. I'm really enjoying that because I, like, I'm able to, you know, I'm doing my concentration in religion, gender, and sexuality. And so I'm able to, um, you know, analyze religion and gender and sexuality in that class, but like through the lens of um, new media and, you know, social media and uh, visual culture and like all these things. And of course, that's like right up my alley, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the whole thing. <laughs> that's like all of church too. So um, it's been really interesting putting um, academic and theological teeth behind stuff that I already knew and was practicing, um, you know, just in my day-to-day life. 
and especially being like a millennial and an early adopter of technology, like these are, these are sort of like secondhand things when it comes to actually practicing, but um, the theory behind it has been really fascinating to me. So I'm really enjoying that class. Hmm. Makes me want to go back to school. And I haven't said that in a long time. No, that's what happened to me. And that's how I ended up back in school because my fiance is also, um, she's just this semester finishing up her MDiv at Vanderbilt. Um, but mm. she was just starting it when we started dating. And, um, so we would like get together and she'd be like talking about her classes and like showing me her homework and stuff. And I was like, Oh, I'm jealous. Like, yeah, I wanna I wanna do that. So that's how I ended up back at Vanderbilt was, uh, someone else did the same thing to me. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Last question. Since you're a spoken word artist, can you drop some lines for us? Oh, my God. Um, what, if, <laughs> what if I sent you a poem? Oh, um, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. I've got, a, awesome. I've got a couple of poems I could send you that have music behind them. And some of them Ooh. are like um, some of them are on the themes of like purity culture and stuff. Oh. I'm going to put that on oh, my yeah. list. I've been like keeping a little list right here. So I'm yes. going to put it on my list. Send poems. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited for that. Well, hey, Emily, this has been really fantastic, uh, very informative, um, gut level kind of challenging on so many different ways. And for someone who's just starting this process of maybe uncovering um, abuse or dealing with it uh, themselves or just really wants to know more about how they can join the Church 2 movement, um, where can they find more about you, uh, your book and the work uh, that you are doing? Yes. Um, okay. So my website, very outdated um, because I am <laughs> launching a book and going to grad school in the pandemic and planning a wedding. So oh, I've been real busy, but you can go to my website, emilyjoypoetry.com. And I'm at emilyjoypoetry on Twitter and on Instagram. And by the time that this comes out, the book will have launched. So please buy my book. Um, you can buy it lots of different places. If you want to line Jeff Bezos pocket, you can buy it on Amazon. You can also buy <laughs> it at Barnes and Noble. You can buy it from the publisher, which is Broadleaf Books, um, or you can also buy it probably from your local bookstore if you call them and ask nicely. So um, <laughs> that would be great. Um, yeah, I would very like, I very much like people to buy the book. I put a lot of um, time and heart and work into it. So um, yeah, my, my biggest hope is that people take it how I mean it, which is as a gift. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, we're definitely going to link to all of that in our show notes so people can find all your stuff there as well. And don't you worry. Your book is now on my list and probably just got shot straight to the top of the list. So I'm going to be buying it soon, too. Good. Well, thanks for being here today. We really appreciate it. And I think this was so helpful and informative, but also healing in a lot of ways. So thanks for joining us, Emily. Yep. Thank, Thank you. you so I really much. appreciate that. Well, thank God I'm a virgin. Or he probably wouldn't want me. I thought as I listened silently while he told me that he just couldn't be with someone who had been with someone else, which is like 90% of adults by the age of 25, so your already limited pool is shrinking very quickly, but don't let me discourage you. Carry on. Tell me how you've saved yourself. How you've saved up enough points with God to buy an unspoiled bride, and you will not settle for less. Tell me about her white dress, how it will mean something. Tell me what it means. Tell me what it's like to have nothing you regret, to have made it through life unscathed by either bliss or pain. What does that feel like? Is it very lonely? 
or does it just feel safe? Like keeping your cocoon heart all wrapped up and tucked away, hoping to God someday it becomes a butterfly before it dies from the frost. I hope whoever she is, she meets all your expectations. I hope enough of her heart is intact for you to feel like the wait was worth it. I hope she never knows you wouldn't have wanted her if she wasn't a virgin. Everybody knows a girl is only as valuable as the men who haven't touched her, only as desirable as the experiences she hasn't had. But baby, when you get to her, she better know what to do in bed. She better satisfy your wildest pornographic fantasies, know all the right ways to move body parts she has never had the chance to use, because God would never fail you, right? waited on his timing now he owes you anything less is not the bill of goods they sold you so i hope it works out for you i really do but if it doesn't just remember what i told you that a heart cannot be divided into pieces and given away until there is nothing left that the greatest gift you can give someone has nothing to do with your flesh that love is really just grace that a lifetime of avoidance does not prepare one for a lifetime of joy and pain that virgin is not a sexual preference nor is it your birthright baby your insecurity is showing she chose you what more do you want? Isn't she amazing? Seriously, go buy her book right now. Uh, for all the show notes and links we promised, including the link to her book, head to holyheretics.org. Next week, we will be talking to the one and only Christina Hartunian of the DTR blog, if you've ever come across her on Instagram or Twitter. She's not only hilarious, she is also extremely thoughtful and passionate. And it is an episode you don't want to miss. So make sure to subscribe right now. If you're interested in supporting our work, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash holyheretics. And finally, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider taking just five minutes of your time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because it really helps us to get in front of more people who are having questions and doubts and just aren't sure how to move forward. Thank you. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge. 